0: Welcome back to South African Border Wars with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 10, and the start of the brilliant tactical success of Operation Savannah that was also a colossal strategic blunder. We ended last week with the growing signs of an Angolan civil war becoming a major problem for South West Africa and the South African Defence Force. The number of incidents involving Swapo had risen through early 1975, but there was also UNITA, which continued to attack Portuguese-developed infrastructure in southern Angola. F.J. Dutoy Spies writes about this in his work Operation Savannah, published in 1989. UNITA had threatened to destroy Kalweki, which fed water to Ovambaland and was part of the Ryokana Hydroelectric Power Project. Kalweki was based inside Angola, but as far as the South Africans were concerned, it was a key point feeding the Ryokana Power Station. By August 1975, UNITA had forced out the last Portuguese engineers based at Kalweki. These men escaped, seeking help from the South African police in Ovambo. They left a handful of Portuguese soldiers and a few pump operators behind, but the system was shut down, breaking the flow of the all-important water to Ovambo. On the 7th of August, 10 South Africans traveling along the border were then held up by UNITA soldiers, who demanded money and cigarettes. The SADF was called in to protect the South Africans, who traveled back to Kalweki, but the three remaining Portuguese pump operators refused to stay, despite the SA Defense Force being based nearby. The crisis at the pumping station was now being discussed by the SADF Director of Operations Brigadier W. Black. It just happened that he was in Rundu on the western edge of the Caprivi Strip at that moment and then travelled to Oshikanti to meet with other Defence Force officers. They had to do something about the Rio Water Project which was in danger. On the 8th of August 1975, it was decided that South African infantry based at Volfes Bay should be ready to be deployed to the border. It was also decided to send a reconnaissance mission to Kalweki. On Sunday, the 10th of August, a company of infantry and armoured car troop, medics and a group of workers arrived at Kalweki. The movement of the South Africans was being kept secret, but as usual, information emerges and details were then published in the Portuguese media with the information that this was a plan by the South Africans to invade the Kunyama region of southern Angola. As we heard last episode, there was going to be a plan developed to invade Angola but it had not yet been discussed, so the reports were premature. By September 1975, Commandant Jan Breitenbach and a group of instructors were dispatched to train 250 FNLA soldiers, and soon others would be training UNITA. A part of this plan was to set up training at Serpapinto, now known as Menong, which was more than 200 kilometers north of the southwest African border. Talks were also taking place between the SADF leadership, such as Constant Fulun and UNITA leader Jonas Avimbi. They met on the 17th of September in Kinshasa, but after initially agreeing to attend, the FNLA's Holden Roberto failed to pitch. While all of this was going on, there were serious clashes between the MPLA and Unita in the southern Angolan towns of Lubito and Benguela. The skirmishes were reported further south and eventually the MPLA arrived at the crucial town of Pereira de Esha, now known as Anjiba. Refugees were flooding across the southern regions of Angola and the former South African military attaché in Luanda, Commandant Pandavals, had been collecting intelligence in the south. In October 1975, he realized that the MPLA was facing UNITA across a broad front shaped like a boomerang all the way from the eastern border with Zaire down to the Atlantic coast. They controlled the territory to the southwest African border, but not southeastern Angola where the FNLA and UNITA had taken up positions. UNITA had now been cut off from the sea and possible ocean-based logistic support. It was already facing headwinds regarding fuel and ammunition supplies. Despite this, UNITA still held Angola's second largest city, Nova Lisboa, known today as Huambo, and a critically strategic town towards the center of Angola. The MPLA had decided that Huambo must be taken and began its march towards the city in the last week of September 1975, starting from three different positions, including Benguela on the coast. They had been trained in that coastal city by Cuban instructors and were now taking two different roads on their journey to Huambo, and they had heavy weapons, including tanks. Between the two cities were a few hundred Unita troops, and Savimbi expressed concern to SADF officers that he was in touch with that his men would be hard-pressed to hold up the MPLA troops. MPLA's armed wing FAPLA was on the move, and these men had been trained for months by both Cubans and Russians. Things were shaping up between the combatants. UNITA was armed with 120mm mortars, two 106mm recoilless guns and two 75mm artillery pieces, but it was hampered by a lack of ammunition and diesel. For months, UNITA had been quietly receiving arms from the CIA, which had been acting without President Ford or the US Congress Authority, but the shipments of arms did not arrive on time and things were sporadic, particularly at this point in the war. The CIA also could not send state-of-the-art weapons like the Red Eye anti-aircraft missile, nor its own advisors. The American public was unaware of the CIA's involvement, and the British, French, and Germans preferred to remain out of the growing civil war. Zaire, however, sent some panhard armored cars to Roberta's FNLA, although these were vintage Second World War. Most would find their way to UNITA, as we will hear. In Pretoria, South Africa's politicians were divided over what to do about the MPLA push south, but SWAPO's actions would convince the cabinet that more direct action should be planned. In mid-August, SWAPO had assassinated the senior traditional leader and chief minister of the newly elected Ovambo internal government, Chief Philemon Eliphas. This was seen as a significant blow to the South Africans' attempt at unifying the Ovambos against SWAPO, it was a propaganda victory for Swapo because Eliphas had been a leading figure in the Turnhalle constitutional talks about to start. All of South West Africa's political parties were supposed to be part of those negotiations, but Swapo was not on the list, preferring a military option to a negotiated settlement. So it was then that the groundwork for Operation Savannah was made. Back in Pretoria, the government had reached its own fork in the road. Strategically, there were two options. First, Escalate talks with African countries with a view to finding some peaceful solution to South West Africa's future. Second was an escalation of war. Prime Minister John Foster, along with his Bureau of State Security Advisor, General Hendrik van den Bach, believed that there should be a diplomatic solution. Defence Minister P.W. Boote and General Constant Fulhoun disagreed. It boiled down to the policeman against the soldier, Van against Boote, and the soldiers were going to win that internal debate. 1975 was a crucial year in South Africa's history. The FNLA and UNITA were being squeezed against the southwest African border by the MPLA, and everyone back in Pretoria knew what would happen if the MPLA won the Civil War. SWAPA would then be able to infiltrate southwest Africa at will. Meanwhile, U.S. Secretary of State Henry Kissinger had let it be known that Washington preferred the South Africans to help the FNLA and UNITA. P.W. Boote believed that South Africa must put its blood where its mouth was and help fight against the MPLA. This, he believed, would send out another message. Those seeking to attack South Africa would find a prepared army at the ready. It emanated from the belief that Africans only respect excesses of power. Anything else would have appeared weak. It was part of the National Party's exclusion principle, one thing and not the other. The supreme irony, as you'll hear over the next few podcasts, is that the South African government was actually more confused about the strategy than they made out. They wanted their diplomatic cake, and they wanted to eat it at the same time. This posed a big problem for the soldiers on the ground. So, by the 24th of September, Jonas Savimbi had welcomed the SADF liaison officer, Commandant Kars van der Waals, who, as we've heard, had been based in Luanda for years as the SADF liaison officer there. Before van der Waals headed off to meet Savimbi, he was told that Nova Lijboa slash Huambo should be held at all costs. The big problem for Savimbi defending this town was that it could be approached along three different roads, and the MPLA and Fapla were in a rush. Commandant Van der Waals was very experienced in Angolan affairs and was already advising Savimbi on training and reorganizing his limited army, but he was growing concerned about the possibility that UNITA would be overrun. Van der Waals was joined by 19 other instructors who came armed with light machine guns and mortars, as well as four NTAC anti tank guided missile launchers mounted on Land Rovers. That team was led by someone who was shortly to make a name for himself Major Louis Holtzhausen. He commandeered one of the Land Rovers after an NTAC was found to be dysfunctional and turned it into his personal command car. This would get him in some trouble, as we'll hear in our next podcast. These men set about training UNITA as rapidly as possible at Silva Porto's abandoned airfield. They were told not to speak Afrikaans to each other, only English, so that they could pass themselves off as mercenaries. Of course, there was a complete news blackout and no one back home in South Africa was aware of what was going on. The involvement of the SADF was to be kept secret and the attempts at maintaining this blackout would last for months and years and would, of course, ultimately fail. Body bags returning home are very difficult to hide. Watching the Russians invade eastern Ukraine starting in 2014, it appears they used a very similar technique. Not only was there denial of troop movement, but they also wore the same nondescript green overalls as did the SEDF in their coming invasion of Angola. The South Africans and Russians have a closer history than is apparent. We'll deal with this fact as we cover this border war over the next few months. So Holtzhausen and the 19 men were tasked with training around 1,000 Unita soldiers who were keen but raw and short of firearms. The South Africans also patched up the dilapidated World War II panards sent from Zaire. It was now almost October and the MPLA forces were approaching at speed. Just how fast would be discovered shortly. Van der Waals was told that three Fafla columns were converging on Menong, from Benguela and Lobita on the west coast and Kela to the north. Then he told Savimbi to launch an immediate attack before the three different FAPLA fire forces had a chance to link up. Van der Waals had selected Commandant Eddie Webb of the infantry to lead the forces defending Serpa Pinta or Menong. There wasn't a moment to lose as the situation was changing quickly. At this stage, the MPLA's army was on the doorstep and the SADF along with UNITA needed to seize the initiative and attack first. There were a few challenges, however. Firstly, Webb wasn't even in Angola. He was still in Rundu in South West Africa. Secondly, both the South Africans and UNITA were ill-equipped and short of the material of war. Still, on October the 2nd, 1975, Webb formed what became known as Battle Group Foxbat out of a company of UNITA troops and a handful of his instructors. These were placed under Holtzhausen's command and they set off to battle. This pocket force was tiny in comparison to the approaching MPLA armies. The nearest airstrip that could be used to lift these men out of danger was 700 kilometers away in Rundu. They now had around a week to prep before moving out to battle. By the 1st of October 1975, they were ready but awaited Savimbi's orders because the SADF was really operating as a mercenary unit inside UNITA. This could have gone catastrophically wrong because there were still Portuguese soldiers fighting against all three independent movements inside Angola, including UNITA. Savimbi eventually arrived at Serpapinto at midday on the 2nd October and escorted Major Holtzhausen to brief the UNITA officers. After another day of delays, the combat group left Serpapinto and headed off to Silva Porto, 140 kilometres away to the north, sloshing through rain that began to fall. It was dark when they arrived and they set up camp close to UNITA base. The next morning, engineers were hard at work trying to fix another of UNITA's broken panards, which by some miracle they managed to achieve. On Friday night of the 3rd of October, the combat unit headed off northwards towards Altohama, then swung directly west towards the port town of Lobito. Holtzhausen knew his small group of SADF men were facing a significant force. There were three armoured missile carriers, three Land Rover N-tacks armed with recoilless guns, 2.50 heavy machine guns mounted on two more Land Rovers manned by SADF Special Service Battalion members, Two Mercedes Benz cargo trucks commandeered back in Silver Porto, and a land cruiser armed with an anti aircraft gun. This motley collection of men and machines was joined by Savimbi and his bodyguards and his personal Land Rover, escorted by two white VWs full of armed guards. Holtzhausen rode in his 4 by 4 They drove through the night, eventually arriving in Lumbali on the road to Balombo, which is between Serfa Pinto and the port of Lobito. They were traveling at night now, concerned that the spotter planes used by the MPLA would pick them up. One of Unita's elderly panards broke down again and it was left under the trees at the side of the road. Unita's Major Lumumba and his infantry battalion then met up with the combat group at Lumbali, adding welcome strength to the mobile unit as they rested under thick foliage during the day. They were now 50 kilometers east of Belombo or Norton de Matos as it was known then and Major Holtzhausen told Savimbi that he needed to conduct reconnaissance for the coming battle. Between this battle group and the town of Bolombo was another UNITA battalion of 600 men, including mortar sections and a 106mm recoilless gun. Savimbi escorted him along the EN-250 main road, and about 10km from Bolombo, Hulzhausen was told the men would not travel further. It was too dangerous. FAPLA was nearby, and unknown to the SEDF and UNITA, FAPLA officers were already aware that there was an imminent attack on their positions being planned and had known since at least that Saturday morning. They had also been tracking the movement of the 600-strong UNITA battalion that was stationed to the west of the town. Some of these UNITA members then emerged from the bush. They were foot patrols who had been ordered to monitor FAPLA. These men reported FAPLA units were resting up in Balombo. During the discussions regarding the layout of the town, it appeared that a bridge on the Kala River just to the east was strategically important. Holtzhausen and Sabimbi then returned to Lumbali, where Commandant Eddie Webb had arrived. Webb informed Holtzhausen that the bridge must be seized in order to stop Fapla's advance towards Huambo. The only alternative road lay through Benguela, nearly 200 kilometers south, and holding the bridge would delay Fapla's advance. But Holtzhausen faced a dilemma. He had to attack the bridge 2.8 kilometers from Bolombo and close to the relatively large force of Fapla soldiers, but he could also be outflanked if the UNITA troops failed to fight back in the inevitable counter-attacks. His closest Defence Force support was now 200 kilometers away. If anything went wrong, the SADF would be exposed in Angola. Remember, they weren't there, according to top brass and political leadership. These were mercenaries from some other country. So Holthausen needed to act. Early on Sunday, the 5th of October 1975, Holthausen and his battle group left Limbali as rain began falling once more. While UNITA and the SADF unit had delayed their attack, FAPLA had been bolstered by the arrival of well-trained military advisers thought to be Cubans, although this was denied later. I'll deal with the debate about who got where and when as we cover this podcast series. So the first major battle involving SADF units on the ground in Angola was about to begin and both sides were going to be surprised. Next week we'll hear about the Battle of Bolombo, which took place on the 5th of October 1975. It's also known as the Battle of Norton de Matos. Please rate the podcast on iTunes. You can also head off to my website, abwarpodcast.com, for some maps of Angola and Namibia. You can also message me directly on Twitter using my handle, at Des Latham. Until next, goodbye.